1: What do you think you'd have to pay to get about a 10% return a year? And if you can't answer that question, then understand what you're doing is not investing, you're gambling or speculating. Now, if you're okay speculating gambling and that's the game you want to play, then at least know the game you're playing. But where it gets dangerous is where you pretend to yourself that you're investing, but what you're really doing is gambling with your money.
2: Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Today is the closest we've ever been to Warren Buffett as today my guest has actually interviewed his son, Peter Buffett. Eric Schlein is the CEO and founder of Granite State Capital Management, the host of the Intelligent Investing podcast, the CEO of Wyoming Warehousing and Safe Deposit Company, and founder of the Proxy Activism Project, where he invented a new form of shareholder activism. He's also a partner and co-founder of Transformational Leadership Associates. Hi, Eric. Hey, how are you? Very good, thank you. So getting back to Peter Buffett, did you talk much about investing or was it just music and writing?
1: Well, I have not been asked about my interview with Peter Buffett in a long long time. I, <laughs> I did, do my deep research yeah, I actually had did that interview with him when I was in college and it was a uh, college radio interview. Uh, we didn't talk at all about investing. Um, he had just come out with a book I think it was called "Life is What You Make It." turned out we shared some similar interests in personal development and wisdom-based ways of living. So the interview was pretty much completely focused on sort of how he lived his life, obviously, you know, what it was like having uh, Warren as his father and sort of the values he instilled, you know, it was important for him to live out his passions. And and so we, we really focused more on that.
2: Yep. Although it does sound like Warren Buffett did instill some very good values in his family.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, if I'm just recalling, one of the Most memorable things generally was that it was important for Warren that his kids weren't just copycats of him, that they were going to do what they wanted to do in their life. You know, he did pay for their college education, you know, he gave them a little bit, uh, you know, to start out with, but then was like, you're on your own and go do what makes you happy. So it was always important that his kids understood that for him, he happened to do a job that also happened to make him very wealthy. But if you were into something else that didn't happen to make as much money, he encouraged his children to go do what made them happy.
2: Warren Buffett was an early inspiration for you. Tell us about the moment when value investing started making sense to you.
1: So it started where, you know, I was at a bookstore. I was about 14 years old and I was with my mom. I wanted to be a big boy and go to the most mature section of the bookstore. So I went to the business section. I found a book and it was called something like a teen's guide to making more money than your parents or something like that. It was by the Motley Fool. And I looked through the book and I talked about things like, you know, the dangers of being a credit card debt, and you know, don't spend more than you have. And they talked about a few investors. One of the investors they talked about was William O'Neill. I read one of his books after taking a look and didn't really make much sense to me. I was like, oh, I don't know if I could do this for 50 years straight. So then they also talked about Peter Lynch. Obviously, the guy's brilliant. The guy's a genius. And it made it more real for me that stocks weren't just you know a ticker symbol with a, a line going up and down with the price. It actually represented companies that had assets and liabilities and cash flows or lack thereof. But, you know, there was a few things that Lynch talked about in his books about discovering Snapple. And I just didn't necessarily know if I could do that. And, you know, he also happened to be investing in a time of, you know, significantly amazing bull market. But then, you know, the book talked about Warren Buffett. So I picked a book up after reading about Buffett called Warren Buffett Wealth by Robert Miles. And in that book, they talked about, you know, Buffett looks to buy these great businesses and something that he could predict. And in that moment, where they started talking about sort of these very, very bird's eye view basic principles of investing, there was like this light bulb that went off. And I was like, oh, investing is simply buying an asset for less than it's worth. And what does that mean? And that was the moment for me. And then from there, you know, I started reading about Buffett's early career when he was investing in a lot of these really tiny micro cap companies and reading about different companies he invested in as he got bigger. And then that spread out to reading about all different other kinds of investors but it was it was reading about the principles, which is, was the light bulb for me.
2: It's interesting though that he spent so much time reading company reports and balance sheets. yes do you think thats uh, that's really required in value investing? I mean do you spend a lot of time reading company reports and balance sheets like Warren Buffett?
1: I do. but I do think the edge is, is slightly different. so if I may I just, I'd like to explain there's a difference I think between doing it in the 1950s and doing it now.
2: Yes, hopefully there is <laughs> some change up until now.
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that has changed is technology, right? When Buffett was a young guy in the nineteen fifties and manually looking through the Moody's manuals trying to find companies that had significantly more assets on the balance sheet than the market cap or something trading at two or three times earnings and there was nothing wrong with it. You know, he wasn't dealing with people with Bloomberg terminals and and capital IQ and and sort of the loads and loads of information that there is today. So for me, if I was going to read about uh, Walmart, just as an example, hmm. if I saw Walmart was trading at 35 times earnings, I don't even know what Walmart trades at right now, but just if it was trading a sort of an average multiple, I would read a report to just understand the business, but I wouldn't be sleuthing through all the little footnotes and what every little off-balance sheet liability may look like, at least for now. Because I know I have no edge over, say, all the analysts that are covering Walmart at Goldman Sachs and all the other investment banks that are going to have a gigantic team that can spend way more money if their entire job is one of the things they do is cover Walmart. So what I do do is if I can look at businesses that either on the surface look extremely, extremely cheap, then I will go and fine-tune, try to understand every single number, every single aspect. Of why is this trading so cheap and is there something I'm missing? Also, if a company is really, really tiny where there's no analyst covering it and they might even be too small for even a larger institution to pay attention, then I will manually comb through those financial statements because... I'm not dealing with the competition of larger institutions.
2: So some of these larger institutions, when they're putting together a mutual fund, you've observed that they seem to be almost doing exactly the the same thing as an index-hugging ETF. Is that why I'm not a big fan of those kind of funds?
1: Well, I think there's obviously going to be exceptions to the rule. There's plenty of wonderful money managers out there, but there's many more that I would say are not so wonderful. And it's not necessarily that they're bad people or anything. But if you look at the nature of these large mutual funds, a lot of them, if not most of them, own hundreds of companies. And if you're just owning that many businesses in a portfolio, just statistically, it's going to be pretty hard to have a performance that is that much different than you know, the S&P 500. The other thing, though, is right. So you're going to be over-diversified, then you're going to be charging a fee for diversification. And then it's not a shocker that most large mutual funds underperform you know, a basic uh, S&P 500 index fund that has you know, low fees. And so that's why I generally don't like them. They're just too diversified and, and you're paying a fee for diversification, which you can do for almost nothing with a basic index fund.
2: So what are you doing? What's a practical example of uh, a company that you would be investing in yourself to try and outperform the index and outperform the mutual funds?
1: Sure. So I'll tell you about a business that I am invested in that comes from a place of trying to attempt to outperform the index fund. And in this particular example, the stock hasn't really moved in two years, but this is where the intention comes from. One of the businesses I'm invested in at my firm, it's a a company called Laco, Los Angeles Athletic Club Corporation. You know, They're they're headquartered in California and Los Angeles. The the Hathaway family, not related to Berkshire Hathaway, um, the Hathaway family, which is a very famous family in LA, They control about 70% of the stock and it's very thinly traded. So it's a $400 million market cap company. So it would be considered a small cap, but there's very low volume. I did actually check the volume today. I think 10 shares traded the entire day of the stock. And there's some, and there's some days where there's zero shares traded, but not only that, it's even more obscure. It's not technically even shares. They're publicly traded units. So it's, it's a publicly traded limited partnership, which means, that if you are a, uh, an American investor, you will be issued a K-1, which is a tax nightmare for accountants, and accountants will hate you for giving you lots of K-1s and they get filed late. Um, but a lot of funds can't invest in partnerships. If you have a, an American retirement account in an IRA, most of the time they can't even buy partnerships. There's some exceptions, but I'm not going to get into that. So already you have conditions, right? Low liquidity, small, no analyst coverage, really awkward legal uh, structure that already makes it uninvestable for the vast majority of Wall Street. Now, that doesn't inherently mean it's a good investment, but it's creating the conditions for low competition, which I like, because if you look at enough of these businesses or the competitive landscape of other players who would be looking at the stock, the competitive landscape goes down significantly, right? It's not like you're looking at Coca-Cola stock you know, however many eyeballs you have on that stock, there's very few people looking at go There's only like a hundred and so shareholders of record. They have two main assets. They have the actual athletic club, and then they have this self-storage portfolio. You know, I would say their their net worth is in self-storage units. And if you did a basic calculation, you would get a value of about $4,000-ish a share for the self-storage units alone. And the stock today trades around $2,000 a unit, and you get about a 4.5% dividend yield or unit distribution uh, while you wait. So if you invest in a basket of businesses like LetGo, you probably won't do so terrible, and you might do okay. So that's the kind of stuff I'm looking at.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.
2: So someone who's a beginner in the stock market, how would you advise them to start going about trying to find companies like that flying under the radar?
1: Well, first I would say before you even attempt to start finding companies, learn how to read income statements, balance sheets, cash flow statements. Because if you can't sort of have a basic understanding of financial statements, just saying, well, I like the business doesn't really mean much if you don't really know how to value it. So there's actually a pretty good uh it's a tiny little book, but I love it. I actually have given it out to people. Uh and it's actually by Benjamin Graham and it's called The Interpretation of Financial Statements. And I I think that's a great starter book. But then in terms of looking at businesses, you want it to be fun. You know, I always tell people investing is a journey. It's not like, oh, now you have the answer. So now you're a great investor and you don't need to learn anymore. It's 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 a nonstop game of learning. So If people think that if they just read these two books, now they'll know how to invest, they're going to burn out pretty quickly and not enjoy it. And the truth is, you know, it's not for everyone, right? You know, a lot of people don't like that game and that's fine. But if you want to even discover if you like that game, just start reading about different businesses. You can go on an investor relations website of a business that you find interesting, whether it's Walmart or Coca-Cola and Go look at their investor presentation. Go read their shareholder letter. You know, start with things that are a little bit easier. And then once you get sort of a grasp of business, you can look at their annual report. Look at how they describe their business. Look at the business risks. Then, you know, make it a little bit harder on yourself. Then go read the footnotes. And, and don't do it because you think the footnotes of Coca-Cola is going to give you an edge. It's not going to give you an edge. We, you know, we kind of talked about that. But it's good to kind of start getting used to doing that. So I would say that's kind of how you can get started. And once you build that muscle and that gets comfortable, then go to an over-the-counter list and look at stocks through A to Z manually and, and start reading businesses and do detective hunting.
2: Yeah, but it is a bit difficult. Although another guest, um, one of his pieces of advice, which I think is pretty good, is if you want to start this journey, I mean, it's always different if you've got your own money on the table. Totally. And what he suggests is that you buy one stock, you invest in it a small amount you know, nothing that you can't afford not to lose. And then once you've got that, then you look at it from every possible angle so that you get to know the business in and out because you've got your own money on the table. Um, You really start caring about it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's also smart for sure. So whoever said that, I agree completely.
2: So you believe that smaller investors... Have an edge totally. over some of the um, the bigger boys in on Wall Street. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people won't uh, can't see this, um, you know, because they think these people have gone to you know some very good schools and they've got they've had financial experience. I mean, what can sort of the the person on the street bring to the table in this?
1: You mean the, the just sort of the average small
2: investor? Yeah, the average small investor. Yeah, the retail investor.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you know, we were we were talking about uh, you know large mutual funds before. So one other thing that I didn't say is they also have these job incentives, right? So and this will get to your question. Imagine you're a money manager managing this large fund. You're making a lot of money doing it. And you decide you're going to invest in some obscure businesses and you're going to have a large percentage of your portfolio in that business. And now let's say for three years it doesn't work out, even if you're right but for 3 years the stock is flat or you have a raging bull market you know let's look at like the late 90s right if you had not owned tech stocks in a large mutual fund and you were buying you know Berkshire Hathaway or something when it was pretty cheap in the late 90s and the stock goes down 50% and all these tech stocks are up 300% you're going to lose your job losing your job means you lose your livelihood you lose that income coming in for your job now at the same time if you own a lot of tech stocks because everyone else owns tech stocks, and then you know, there's the tech bubble crash and you lose money like everyone else. Well, you don't necessarily lose your job because you can say, well, we were invested in technology and this this is why it didn't work out, and everyone else has lost a lot of money too, but we're committed to rebuilding and we're committed to, you know, making that money back over time, and we still believe in the long term prospects of these businesses. So a lot of those people get to keep their job and keep their livelihood. So there's these incentives at play that make it extremely risky to either be overly um, concentrated in certain positions or to buy certain kinds of companies that the average person is not. So as an individual investor who's a smaller investor and not working for a large institution, there's a huge competitive advantage just because you don't have job incentives. It's not like if something doesn't work out for a few years, someone's going to fire you. You don't have that pressure to you.
2: You don't have the pressure of the herd mentality by the sounds of things as well.
1: Exactly. So you can also buy businesses. It doesn't have to be just really tiny companies. There are businesses out there that do have eyeballs on on them, but for whatever reason, they don't neatly fit into some kind of category. You know, If you look at something like, like Aircap, they do airplane leasing. It's pretty hard for me to come up with a scenario where you lose a lot of money buying that stock. The value of those airplanes that they have on their balance sheet Even if there are some markdowns, they're still worth quite a bit. And I would say worth more than the current market cap today. And they're also a really wonderful business. The CEO is wonderful, but it's airplane leasing. You know, it's kind of scary because it has to do with airplanes and with COVID, airplane travels down, but it's not a pure play on airliners, too, right? It's not Delta Airlines or uh, Qantas or, you know, something like that, right? So it's like this weird, middle ground, there's not a lot of publicly traded airline leasing companies. Or if you were to look at, you know, I don't own it anymore, but for a while I owned stock in uh, the American baseball team, the Atlanta Braves. Well, it's a publicly traded baseball team. That's kind of a weird kind of asset because they have some real estate on the books, but it's not a real estate company. They had media contracts, but it's not a media company. It's a sports team. And I'll give you one more, you know, Brookfield Asset Management. They're very famous, actually. They're a very famous company in Canada, but. They're not a pure play real estate company because they're an asset management company as well, but they're not a pure asset management company. And then they have these weird publicly traded limited partnerships that they own stakes in. So again, it's a weird structure and it's hard to kind of value all the pieces together. So you kind of have to trust that management is telling you somewhat of a fair valuation of the different parts of the business. But it doesn't fit neatly into a box, so a lot of people avoid it. And, you know, it's not on the S and P 500 or anything like that. So, if you can find businesses like that, where you can say, "Well, you know, it may not work out tomorrow, it may not even work out next year because airplanes aren't coming back, or you know, shopping malls that Brickfield owns aren't coming back necessarily tomorrow." But wow, there's some quality assets here, and I can afford to hold them for five years, and it might work out and get a wonderful return in the next five years. And I'm buying it at a pretty low valuation today. You know, if you worked at a fund on Wall Street, you may not be able to afford to do that. You know, you're worried about what's performing next quarter.
2: This is an interesting uh, point, Eric, because this year a lot of new investors have come onto the market via Robinhood and other low-cost trading platforms. And really, I think a lot of young people look at ticker codes. They're not looking at the businesses. Is there something you would say to them? Because obviously they're making money, so they're, they're thinking... This is not a problem, but is there another way of looking at it, and some advice that you can give them?
1: Um, so I don't know if the advice would work, but, but the advice that I would give them is I would say, look, can you see that an asset is worth all the cash flows it will make discounted back to the present? If you look at hundreds of years of market asset values over time, tend to trade, you know, along lines with with that you know basic principle, and there are temporary times where they trade significantly lower. Say you could find a lot of interesting tech companies in 2002, and there's times where they trade significantly higher. So, I'm not going to say what you own or don't own is good or bad, but what I would ask you and have to ask yourself is what are the assets in your portfolio worth? If you were to, you know, close your eyes and didn't know what the stock price is, what do you think you'd have to pay to get about a 10% return a year? And if you can't answer that question, then understand what you're doing is not investing, you're gambling or speculating. Now, if you're okay speculating gambling and that's the game you want to play, then at least know the game you're playing. But where it gets dangerous is where you pretend to yourself that you're investing, but what you're really doing is gambling with your money. And the problem with that is you know, if I've been at a casino and I put $50 on red on a roulette table and it hits red, it doesn't mean that I'm a good roulette player. And the problem is you have a lot of these young people on Robin Hood, and they're putting $50 on red, hitting red, and think, oh, I'm really smart, so next time I'll put $1,000 on red. And the problem is when you're gambling and speculating, at some point that comes back to bite you in the ass. And unfortunately, if you think you're really, really smart with smaller sums of money, you're going to do really, really, really dumb things with much larger sums of money, and that is a recipe for disaster. And I think if you can kind of outline that that's a probable, almost certain future uh, for your financial path, you may start thinking twice about it.
2: I mean, how many times have you talked to people and um, they've got some stock pick that they want to share with you and then you ask them, well, what do they do? And they say, oh, I don't know, something with computers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it happens quite a bit. Especially in my line of work, people want to give me stock picks all the time.
2: Well, that's the thing. You'd be the, the person at the barbecue where people want to come and talk about um, the stock market, <laughs> wouldn't they?
1: Uh, you have no
2: idea. Yeah. <laughs> I, I bet they do. Actually, I heard somewhere else, someone else was telling me about this the other day, like when markets are, are, are down, no one mm-hmm. wants to talk to you at the barbecues about the market. But it's only when the markets are booming that everyone wants to talk about their individual stock picks. It's an interesting piece of psychology, really, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it, it, it is. You know, the stock market is one of the only markets in the world that when things go on sale, people run out of the market. I mean, could you imagine if your local supermarket, they said milk 50% off today and everyone just ran and screamed out of the supermarket in fear because milk was down? <laughs> Bizarre. But in the stock market where we're so disconnected, I want to say we, I mean, I think as a general public, so many people, their like logic systems turn off, right? If you're at the supermarket, and you see milk. It's not a representation of milk. It's just something you can hold, something you can touch. It's a bottle of milk. But in the stock market, because it's a computer screen or you know a ticker symbol you see on your TV, we somehow have disconnected that these are actual assets. And when you see the prices come down, we haven't even done the thinking of what they might be worth. It just seems really scary. That I mean, that's the source of it right there. So,
2: Eric, tell us about um, your podcast, how you're finding it being a podcaster as well as a financial guru.
1: Well, it's uh, it's a lot of fun, you know. It's, I will say, it is, isn't it's fun it? being on someone it's else's podcast. This is a you know pretty new thing for me, but I love it. I mean, I love teaching. I love teaching about investing, and, and there's other things I like to teach too. But I love to share my knowledge and wisdom with people so they can go out and use it in their own way. Um, and something I've always loved doing, really, since I'm since I'm little, like I used to do magic tricks when I was little, and then I would actually be one of those people that wanted to teach my friends how I did the trick. So, you know, with investing, it's the same thing. It's one of the passions that I have in my life. And it I find it really engaging and engages my curiosity and intellect and psychology all at the same time. And then to have a show, right, instead of, you know, teaching a, a friend of mine on the phone or over coffee or something, I get to interact with so many people with an online platform. And I love the podcasting format because it's not like some BS pretense that you have. It's very intimate. It's a very sort of just chill, kind of how, you know, this isn't a scripted conversation. I don't have scripted conversations with my guests. We might have an idea of what we're going to talk about, but we don't pre-plan or pre-script it. And it's allowed me to meet a lot of really cool and interesting people, both people who are guests and also people who listen, who who reach out to me. So I love it. It's a blast.
2: So before we talk even more about it, what's the name of the podcast?
1: It's called the Intelligent Investing Podcast.
2: And who are some of the guests that you've had and how's your life been enriched by some of your guests? Are there any good examples of that?
1: Yeah. There's a guy who I've interviewed a few times recently. Uh, his name is Jeremy Raper. The way he approaches investing is by looking at, you know, will I ever actually get paid back on the investment that I make? So it's like, sure, it's great to buy a company trading below liquidation value, but will you ever actually see those assets? If you know the management wants to hoard the assets for 20 years and never pay them out. That's not really a good investment. So he looks at things very, very differently. And he also is not afraid to buy a business that is trading at somewhat of a higher multiple that's growing at 100% a year. He's opened me up to more of these obscure stock exchanges outside the United States, like the AIM exchange, or um, there's an exchange in Germany that's sort of under the radar. So it's always fascinating talking to him, and it allows me to think about investing in businesses a little bit differently. Generally, though, when people come and talk about investment ideas, they're usually about businesses that I've never heard of or I don't know anything about, and they're coming with their own circle of competences and you know what's cool is that when you meet someone in the world, it doesn't even have to do with business or investing, but just in general you know there's a there's a book by Adam Grant it's called Give and Take and one of the principles they have in the book is this notion called weak ties versus strong ties. And a strong tie, you know, if you think of a tree, right, a strong tie would be like the trunk of the tree. It creates stability. So a strong tie are people that you know really well, assuming you're close with your family, the people in your family, your, your inner circle. Those are your strong ties. And most people in life, they focus on just consistently getting closer and focusing their energy on their strong ties. And while it gives you stability in life, it doesn't actually give you much growth. Weak ties, on the other hand, is your access to growth in life. Phil, you know, the fact that we're connecting, you know, we're both clearly very curious people and we value things like intellect and learning. And and I'm sure if we got to know each other better, we'd find that we have more things in common. And even though we don't do business together, you know, we're going to be on a podcast, but you would be a weak tie to me. And there's a whole reality, a whole world, a whole way of how you see life that you see life at that my family doesn't, that my inner circle doesn't. And if I was to spend hours and hours and hours hanging out with you, I would learn a ton. It would stretch my mind. It would stretch how I see reality. There's a tremendous amount of growth and learning in meeting people that are kind of outside your own, you know, normal day to day activity. So just being able to meet people that I never would meet otherwise just expands the way that I see the world. You know, I had um I had Guy Spear on who runs off Marine Capital you know most people know about how he invests and he likes to buy really wonderful companies and hold them for a long time value investor but less people know about all his experiences with tony robbins so we spent over an hour on the phone you know in an interview talking about his personal development background and and all and all this wisdom he's learned and and sharing with us examples and it was really really fascinating and that's never something he sort of really talks much about in a business lecture that you could watch on YouTube. That's sort of the value personally for me is just getting to meet these wonderful people and talking about all different kinds of topics, including business and investing.
2: It's interesting that you put it as weak ties. That's giving me a whole new perspective on the way that I talk, think about my guests, but you are getting a view into their world. I mean, recently I interviewed someone about mining because, you know, mining is a huge area, but a lot of people don't even know anything about it. And just to get that perspective that someone could actually have fun raising a bit of capital so you can go and do some drilling because there's a sniff of something there, there's a sniff of gold, there's a sniff of silver. We're going to have a lot of fun trying to find it. I mean, that was just a a beautiful insight.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's funny, right? It's like, even I'm listening to you saying that, it's like, wow, that's actually kind of interesting, right? I want to learn more about that. The thing, though, is like to whoever you were interviewing – you know, if they were at a mining conference, right, you know, talking to other people who do that exact same thing, exactly, that yeah. would not be an insight. That would be just like a normal, oh, of course, that's cool. Of course, that's interesting to do. So it's interesting when you meet someone, right, who's into mining, And oh, I have this whiff, I'm going to raise some capital. Already, there's new ways you're thinking about things just from something as basic as that.
2: So Eric, how can people find you and uh, get some more information about you, the podcast and uh, Granite State Capital Management? Sure.
1: If you just go to my website, ericschlein.com, E-R-I-C-S-C-H-L-E-I-E-N.com, and there's all the information you want to know about me, a link to my podcast, there's a link to Granite State. If you wanted to go on the Granite State Capitol website directly, it's just gscm.co. You can contact me uh, through either website as well. There's a contact form on both.
2: Eric, I think we could talk for a lot more hours. Maybe we should get together and do this again sometime. Seriously, um, yeah. Thank you very much for joining me today. And it's been a real pleasure meeting you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on.
2: Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thanks to Christopher Sulos for music production out of Garlic Breath Studio. Music flows when the money don't.